Hello to you euphoric Europop fanatics, it's Chappie, your British butler. Keep calm and cauliflower cheese, episode 190. We're having a little bit of a Eurovision special today, so squeeze into your tightest jeans, preferably some spandex here. Uh, anything sparkly, anything glittery, any two-tone shirts, long collars, but really you want to be squeezing into things today. That's the key. If it, if it doesn't really fit you, you're going to be perfectly dressed for this Euro Pop special today. Yeah, a little bit of that going on here. Just, just, oh, just here we go. I've got my white spandex jeans on. I'm just trying to oh, squeeze it. Oh, absolutely fantastic there. Wonderful. 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 Anyway, I hope you're having a lovely Saturday here. It's going to be steaming hot. I mean, to be honest, you may not may just want to take your shirt off and dance with your shirt off today. Dance like there's no tomorrow because there'll be cheese, there'll be fromage. There'll be some of the stinkiest cheese you're ever going to see. It's not going to be a mature cheddar. It's going to be an incredibly pungent European cheese on your TVs, on your radios tonight if you're listening to Europop. And everybody's asking me, well, Chappie, you're appearing on Instagram today. What's happened to you? Well, I just want to let everybody know that I've had... A, uh, I've had a, I've had a facelift. I've taken some of the excess fat out of my bottom, out of my posterior, out of my ass, and I've injected it into my face so I can sort of go for four and a half double chins. And you know, it takes a while to get over that type of surgery. So this is, I mean, this is if you want to hear how it happened, uh, a reconstruction, a reenactment of the, of the procedure here. So this is the this is the fat being taken out of my backside. I have a very, very flat posterior now, and it's being injected into my face just to give me the extra double chin, just so I can hide my glow sticks today between one of the chins. And here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. Oh. Now it's a, it's a terrible trouble trying to find trousers that, uh, that accommodate a completely flat bottom, because I've now got a, a, a dad butt uh, it's completely flat now, and I can't I can't find uh, anything to uh, to squeeze into it. Now I've got the paunch, the pigeon paunch. Oh, it's a little bit more uh, more than a pigeon now. It's more like a uh, emperor penguin paunch, probably. Um, now that's pushing things down from the front, and at the back there's nothing to hold it up. So really, I'm going to have to get some of those braces. Uh, or uh, in America, they call them suspenders. I know it gets very confusing because in uh, in the UK, suspenders are the things that hold up your stockings. I don't need any of those today, but who knows? I'm uh, in the Euro pop journey, the Eurovision journey that we're having today. I may slip some stockings on. I may go Freddie Mercury before the end of the program, just for you, the listener, just to regale you, the uh, Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese listener. On the Musical Emporium Butler Edition, we're going to have some very, very cheesy Europop, some Eurovision, and just cheesy Europop, just to whet your appetite. We don't want it too wet, but we want you flaming, ready to hit the dance floor, ready to use those glow sticks, spinning them around like there's no tomorrow. Spin me around, baby, like a record. So many people may know that I made my return to the gymnasium. Yes, I call it a gymnasium. That's, how, that's the last time I uh, went to the gym was when you called it a gymnasium and that was possibly in fashion. Yes, I returned. It's like Charles II returning to the throne after uh, Oliver Cromwell's protectorship uh, during, the, uh, during the 1600s. 
it's like Howard Hughes emerging from the abyss, emerging from being hidden away. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's why I wasn't going to the gym. It was my reclusive eccentric behavior, my obsessive compulsive disorder, how I didn't want to go near anybody else's sweat. And by gosh, by golly, there's a lot of sweat in this gym, especially after I've been to it. So we had the situation where I made the great return. Almost like the athletic messiah, I returned to where I should be. And I recorded the moment as I stepped foot back into the gymnasium. This is a very exciting moment in the pantheon of athletic achievement as I walk meander slowly towards they like to call in the modern world the gym many olympians have challenged it over the years and i'm gonna to try to get back into it again here so let's hope there's not going to be too many people around seeing my sweat-ridden locks we're approaching hopefully it's around lunchtime so i'm having a little bit of break for my butler duties and uh, gonna see what uh, what's what no pull yet the sun's out the gun's definitely on down i'm gonna sort of sweat it up for the next 45 minutes and everybody says you know, this is what you need to be doing i mean this is how little i know i'm actually i don't actually know where i'm going here it's part of the issue so i'm like walk towards the fence I'm going to have to right round the building and enter the other side. But, uh, I mean, this could alter the axis of the earth, me going back into a gym again. Yes, I think I'm hoping I'm going to be able to find my way round this particular direction, who knows. There's so much, this sort of exertion may not be very good for you. So I've had to, you give me extra, extra exercise, I had to go right round the to the back of Chappie Towers. I'm taking completely the wrong direction. I'll see if I can get in this way. Slowly but surely. I need to uh, put my retina to get into the gym, I think. Security systems. I wonder if it would recognize me. So here we go. As we enter, you'll hear the little buzzing sound. And it's opened up. And um, there's nobody in here, which is perfect. I'm get some water if I need to. And here we go, it's a lovely setup here. I'm going to have a go on the old travelator with the arms and legs moving and here I am so settling into my new routine here in the middle of the day chappy out for now hopefully I'll be joining in a podcast later in the week that's the audio evidence of me returning to the gym the prodigal son returns to the gym it could have been a bible story back in the day isn't it 
the uh, the fatty returns, the rotund chappy returns to where he's meant to be. Anyway, well, I'll keep you updated over the course of the next couple of weeks how things go. But coming along the way on the podcast is that we have a Eurovision special, looking at some of the scandals, a little bit of the history here, and uh, some of the runners and riders. I mean, everybody expects Ukraine to win, as they probably should. I don't know if I want Sam Ryder and Spaceman to win the Eurovision today, as it will forever be tarnished. But everybody say Ukraine should have won. I mean, they've got quite a good entry, the Ukrainians. So uh, they've got a they've got a top shop. Uh, a chance and hopefully for us in the UK we're not going to be finishing last but over the last three or four years it's been nil point on the podcast today the old spy trick loose nuts on the trail uh, never tell a doctor your diagnosis never self-diagnose in front of a doctor I'll be telling you why later dream of a catching what does catching dreams mean the brave man running in the jeans nobody is smart enough clothes for the Kentucky Derby anymore I don't think that is awesome. Why is this statement so important in everyday language? Um, also, uh, more uh, tales from the old gym. Uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody would think that I'm wearing those uh, green flash uh, plimsolls and uh, and like a like an old vest here, slightly yellowy vest. No, I don't wear that to the gym. Uh, but at the same time, I think I'm going to need some shorts that have a little bit more stretch in them. I'm finding as I'm on the bike, things. Uh, getting squeezed next to each other is basically like squeezing a couple of oranges it's not working out very well I need some more looseness around the short area when it goes to the gym um, and also the elliptical I, I think I heard the elliptical say something to me and I'll be telling you uh, why I thought that and uh, I, I thought it was called the travelator but I think that's something that was happened in the UK gladiators as well uh, also, oat milk. Can we invent seri with in intonation? Because I get messages um, that flash into my ears whenever I uh, get a text message coming in. And sometimes these are very sweet messages. But I think to enhance these messages even more, with even a, with even a tiller of emotion uh, would be good. So Siri does need a little bit of, uh, of intonation. So plenty of Eurovision along the way. Lots of very, very cheesy pop if you're listening on the Butler Emporium Music Edition playlist. But we're going to have a rip-roaring time and we're going to get sweaty and you're going to be getting very physical. So a lot of Americans, a lot of people around the world do not know what Eurovision is. Although most of the world are included now in Eurovision, it seems. So it really should be a little bit more familiar. But the history of Eurovision Song Contest began as a brainchild of Marcel Benzacon of the EBU. The contest was based on Italy's San Remo Festival and was designed to test the limits of live television broadcast technology. The first contest was held on the 24th of May 1956. Seven nations participated with a live orchestra, the norm in the early years, the simple sing-along songs on every radio station. The contest grew into a true pan-European tradition. Excuse them, what? In the beginning, it was obvious for the participants they should be able to sing in the country's national language. However, as a Swedish entry in 1965, Absent Friend was sung in English. 
the EBU set very strict rules on the language in which the songs could be performed. National languages had to be used in all the lyrics. Songwriters across Europe soon tagged onto the notion that success would only come along if the judges could understand the content, um, resulting in such entries as Boom Bang Alang and La La La. In 1973, the rules on language use were relaxed, and in the following year, ABBA would win with Waterloo. Those freedom of language rules would soon be reversed in 1977 to return to the apparent status in the 1999 contest. The end of the Cold War in the early 1990s did lead to a sudden increase in numbers, with many former Eastern Bloc countries queuing up to compete the first time. This process has continued to this day and more countries joining. For this reason, in 2004, the semi-final format was introduced by the EBU, which turned two semi-finals for the Eurovision Song Contest into 2008. Now all countries except the Big Five, France, Germany, Italy, Spain and the United Kingdom, together with the host country, must be in the semi-final top 10 to qualify for the final. In 2015, the Eurovision Song Contest celebrated its 60th anniversary. The BBC hosted a grand anniversary show in London featuring over a dozen former participants and to honour the country's Eurovision Song Contest commitment for over 30 years, the organiser admitted Australia to participate in the first time ever. And it's still called the Eurovision? Despite the grand old lady being a respectable age, her pension is nowhere inside as the Eurovision Song Contest is still the most modern live TV entertainment spectacle in the world. So I think as I was out and about the other day, I saw the old spy trick. Across the trail were scattered some pistachio shells. And this is an old spy trick, age old, mainly used in the Greek spy tradition and the Greek mafia where you scatter pistachio shells across the path and you can hear anybody coming as especially if they're heavy laden when it comes to their steps this pistachios crack under the foot and you can hear if somebody's approaching or somebody's trying to surprise you and I think somebody was trying to do this on my walk the other day you've got two very heavy laden footages with myself and the corgi with a fair ton of weight there i mean when she uh, steps on a pistachio shell you can definitely uh, hear the crunching you can hear the cracking along with your dear host but i wonder who was trying to spot me coming the most noticeable man in the neighborhood especially when i'm wearing my plus fours and fully tweed when it's 80 degrees outside. A little bit of chappy advice here. I think that when you go to the doctors, you should never self-diagnose. Don't even tell the doctor what's wrong with you. Because I, I want to try this out one day. So I think I'm going to uh, paint my tongue yellow, which I have every morning with the turmeric. So I'm going to chew a little bit of turmeric, swirl it around the tongue, and uh, basically go in the doctor's just sticking out my tongue with the yellow tongue and see what he, what he, you know, what sort of diagnosis he's going to give me. Is he going to say that I have yellow fever, jaundice, or is he going to say, you dirty boy, you should scrub your tongue. Why the hell are you chewing turmeric? And uh, why don't you put a bit of Listerine just before you come and see me? It's absolutely disgusting. But here's the thing. I think a lot of people go in there and sort of self-diagnose and you're giving the doctor a little bit of a way out. They don't have to do any work. Don't self-diagnose. Let the doctor do all of the work.
I mean, they might get you to do an MRI or a CAT scan or something because they have no clue. Because I think you do the self-diagnosis and then the doctors say, well, take two paracetamol twice a day or, um, you know, take this um, oxycodone because you're, you know, you're, you've got a pain in the ankle and you think you've ripped the ligaments. Let the doctor do the work. You know, that's why they paid the big bucks. Let them do the, let them do the diagnosis. Don't you self-diagnose because then you're going to stress yourself out even more. And, but let the, doctor, let the doctor do what they're being paid for. Because you go in there and you think, well, I think I have diverticulitis. Well, let me take a look down there, sir. No, no, no. I mean, if, you, if you're just doing that, then you're letting the doctor get away with it and they just become the pharmacist. Don't let the doctor become just the pharmacist. Let them do the diagnosis. Let them do what they did, all the rigors and all the pain they had to go through in medical school. Let them put that to work and let them diagnose. Don't go in. Don't make their lives easy. Don't give them the easy life. So let's take a look at some of the Eurovision scandals over the years. Since the 1950s, Eurovision has brought together a wildly diverse group of different cultures in celebration of all things camp and glorious. Sometimes the political tensions come bubble to the surface and make things rather awkward moments in various Eurovision contenders battle out for supremacy. So here's the first one. Krista Siegfried, the famous onstage lesbian kiss... Yeah, I mean, like, that was a big deal. With one of her backup dancers to protest her country's ban on same-sex marriage causing a major headache for the European Broadcasting Union. As Krista said, made it through the finals. It's live on TV, so nobody can stop me. In the end, the kiss did make the cut, and thank God Krista got to make her statement. And then we have Verka Sedusha, the Ukraine, the drag queen, Versha Sedusha, known as the Ukrainian comedian Andrei Danko, not only not all from her homeland were happy with the selection of uh, Andre and his famous alter ego to represent the country with one national Ukrainian radio station launching a campaign protesting his selection and even the members of the Ukrainian parliament weighing in to accuse the character. With Verka Andre making it all the way to second place in the finals, Andre got the last laugh. 2012, the Samaranese entry was originally called Facebook Uh-oh! But it was modified after it's found to contravene the Eurovision context forbidding uh, product placement. After being changed to the social network song, the new entry had all the references to Mark Zuckerberg Empire removed, which made for some odd lyrics who were still designed to rhyme with Facebook. The colors of the performers' costumes look remarkably similar to that of the social network. And also, somewhat of a wild card entry, Sylvia Knight, known as a fictional co- comedic character in her home country along the lines of Sasha Baron Cohen's creation Bruno. She's known for playing the diva and causing trouble for comedy's sake, of course. Unfortunately, this did not translate well outside of Iceland and she stirred quite a bit of trouble in the host city Athens with on-camera expletive-filled backstage rant against her fellow competitors. Her song itself, Congratulations, didn't really help the situation, congratulating everybody for choosing her for the competition because she, the best performance, featured her strutting in feathered headdresses, fly-high boots, all pink everywhere, and hot pants, wearing backup dancers. The host nation didn't see the funny side, though, and the audience gave quite the stony-faced reaction. With just 62 points, it wasn't enough to send her through to the final. One of the most famous and celebrated winners, though, uh, was Israel's Dana International. Clearly stirred up more debate uh, on the European stage, and uh, everybody chose her as the winner. 
Orthodox Jews, conservatives in the home country, tried to prevent her from participating as they deemed it unfit that a transsexual should represent Israel. Dana got the last laugh, though, performing in a stunning parrot feather jacket designed by Jean-Paul Gaultier. Dana took out the top prize and went on to release multiple albums, being the world's most famous transsexual pop icon. What would be a list of scandals without a good old fashion wardrobe malfunction? Not too dissimilar to Janet Jackson's moment at the Super Bowl. At first, it appears to be a horrifying mishap when Swedish presenter Lil Linfors is left just in a top and underwear after a skirt catches the complicated set. It then appears that the host is on it and the situation rather cleverly turns on itself. So I want to give an award for the bravest chap, the bravest man of the week. I saw a guy running the other day with his dog and he was building quite a sweat up and he was wearing a pair of jeans. Now, I just want to give him the award for being the bravest because of the whole chafing situation. Have you ever tried to skedaddle? Have you ever tried to even meander wearing jeans? The chafing is not very, very pleasant. And these were not baggy, loose jeans. There was no elastic to be seen, uh, but they were the skinny jeans. So you saw a guy running along, and I mean, that sort of thing, I mean, that, that's basically like rubbing some kindling together with some leaves uh, before camping. That sort of thing could cause a spark. You got the old boy rubbing against the jeans there. I think you could cause a fire. I mean, that's how tight they were. And that's how much chafing, I believe, was probably going on. I don't really want to know. I don't want to see the inner workings of the situation of a man uh, running along, pairing, wearing a pair of jeans. Not my idea of fun at all. I'm just saying that spark could indeed cause a fire. So last weekend, it was the Kentucky Derby, the Kentucky Derby, as they call it in America. Um, but here's the thing, is one of the times where you see America get rid of the fanny packs, get rid of the leisure wear, get rid of the uh, misshapen jeans, hopefully they're not running in it, um, and they put on or try to dress smartly. But some of the Instagram pictures that I saw People were wearing jeans, ill-fitted shirts, and clip-on bow ties. That was the men. And uh, the ladies were just sort of zhuzhing up their leisure wear. I mean, if you're going to go full derby here, and if you want to see how people should dress for a derby, a horse racing derby, then look at Royal Ascot. Look at Derby Day, the first day of June. Top hat and tails, beautiful dresses, and the obligatory hats as well that people don't care if they're going to be uh, blown off. And people have moved towards the fascinators now with the clips here. Now that is what you need to be wearing. Zhuzhing up, trying to fancy up leisure wear, wearing jeans and clip-on bow ties, and not, I'm afraid, gentlemen, going to cut it. And on Derby Day, for bloody hell's sake, have a shave. So as you know, I absolutely love... Uh, talking about my dreams on the podcast. And I had a fabulous one the other day. Very interesting one anyway. I dreamt about catching balls. Now I dreamt about catching golf ball, cricket ball, tennis ball. They were in the dream. And I remember it vividly. But I wanted to look into the reason, the essence, the meaning behind catching balls. So if you dream about catching balls, it's an omen for a lack of confidence. Who would know? You have kept your feelings inside for too long and it's erupting uncontrollably. You're experiencing anxiety and fear over an upcoming task or event in your life. I mean, maybe it's playing 18 holes of golf today and trying to drive the golf cart. 
yes, not a very, not a good driver. A little bit worried about the whole thing tipping up as it nearly did before. This stream is sadly a warning alert for them, some sourness or resentment in your emotional state of mind. Well, maybe it's the blood orange before bed. Perhaps you are being too sheltered and you're lacking experience in certain areas of your life. Okay. Catching Bordream is a signal for low self-esteem and feelings of inferiority. You need to slow down. You need to rest more and take your time. You feel that you're in a rut doing the same things and going to the same places. A dream symbolizes someone in your life you need to take more care of. You're lacking originality. How dare you say this with me on the podcast and taking over where your life is taking you. If you dreamed about catching a ball, if you planned on going out with a loved one, don't expect everything to go smoothly. As today's favorable aspect could mean that quite a few unexpected events could occur. Well, we've had Friday the 13th. We don't want any more disruption like two o'clock in the morning and alarm bell going off. However, if you can cope with the disruption, this won't actually be a bad thing and may even be very positive. If you meet up with others, it could change your lives in significant ways. So, okay, another a meaning of dreaming to try to catch a ball is alert for pent-up guilt in which you're subconsciously punishing yourself. You may not be in tune with your feminine side. Oh, darlings, I think that I am. You're not, uh, you're not expressing your feelings effectively. This dream is a clue for feelings of hopelessness about some situation or circumstance. If you dream about a pool ball, and we're not talking about the inflatable ones in the pool, we're talking maybe a snooker ball, a snooker, a snooker ball, uh, signifies repressed, repressed and negative feelings that you may have about yourself. You're trying to withdraw from the realities of life. There may be uh, something that you have ignored or neglected for too long. This is a metaphor for opposing ideas and contradicting attitudes. You need to fix some problems in your life. And of course, if you dream about a ball gown, so here we go again. This is dreaming about a ball gown is a sign for pent-up anger and aggression. Well, I often dream about myself wearing a ball gown and maybe with the suspenders underneath. You're subconsciously repeating the same old patterns from a relationship to your current relationship. Well, luckily, I don't dream of ball gowns very often. If you dream about ball bearings, ladies and gentlemen, uh, signals your refusal to see the truth or lack of awareness to a problem. Your old thoughts and outdated beliefs are dying. How dare you? I'm a confident Gen Xer. How dare you? Anyway, so there we go. Catching balls. I wonder about dropping balls, but I was actually catching the other day. Dream. If you dream about yourself in a ball gown, we've had uh, the explanation of that. And if you dream about ball bearings, who dreams about ball bearings? So if you want to explore a possible future plot line for Ted Lasso, then we have the crazy inside story of Wagatha Christie, Rebecca Vardy, and Colleen Rooney, the footballer's wives, the wags, up against each other in court here. If you think Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's court case are ridiculous, then come and take a peek at this one. The origins of the Wagger for Christie uh, libel action launched by Rebecca Vardy against Colleen Rooney, which is finally heard in the Royal Courts of Justice. It was in the bars and boutiques of Baden-Baden during the 2006 World Cup in Germany that the celebrity world collided with the beautiful game to spawn the WAG phenomenon. Young, good-looking women flashed the cash and binged the booze while their superstar football husbands and boyfriends acted out their own soap opera in the pitch. The best three weeks of my life over nothing like this will ever happen again, lamented the barman at Garibaldi, a bar restaurant in Baden-Baden. 
after England were knocked out of the competition by Portugal in the quarterfinals. As here, the, the England wags, wives and girlfriends, had knocked back Peach Bellini's bottles of Moe and vodka Red Bulls as if, they were in, uh, if it was New Year's Eve night. Wayne Rooney's girlfriend, Colleen, was a relative ingenie. However, the 20-year-old appearance in the defining paparazzi photographs of the Wags alongside Ellen Rees, fiancé of Frank Lampard, Louise Bonsall, wife of Michael Owen, Victoria Beckham, heading out to dinner. Coupled with Wayne's status as the hottest young talent in the game, elevated her to the level of celebrities surpassed only by Victoria Beckham. Columns for Closer and OK Magazine soon followed and did a six-figure deal. Colleen's Real Women. Implicit in the submissions by Rooney's legal team and in the PR and spin operations, the Wagger for Christie entered the nation's conversations. Rebecca Vardy aspired to the same level of fame. She had seen the Wags living the dream in the summer sunshine and wanted to do the reality. She wouldn't be the first woman to nurture that ambition. Where it gets darker, the implication that she viewed passing on gossip about her peers to the Sun newspaper as a means to curry favour with her key media players and to cement her status among the WAG aristocracy, the WAGtocracy. So some very British problems for you. The Brit inches from the abyss with no way back, only eternal nothingness in front of them and thousands upon thousands of broken dreams and lost hopes lying shattered and scattered behind will consider the situation, let out a deep sigh, and utter their final words. Oh well. Yeah, it's not kisses for me, it's more sniffers for me. Very British problems with hay fever. Number one, rubbing your eyes so much that you look like you've been swimming in pure chlorine for a week. Number two, wishing people would stop suggesting you cure your lifelong debilitating medical condition by eating a spoonful of honey. Number three, finding that nothing helps you more than people constantly saying, oh dear, you do look bad. Number four, noting that there's always one person who suggests putting Vaseline underneath your nose as if you would not want to be seen in public. Number five, being thrilled to hear a colleague say that hay fever has never affected them. Number six, being grateful for everybody's shrewd medical inquiry. Have you taken any hay fever tablets? Number seven, trying to remember what it was like to breathe without your throat making five different sounds at once. And number eight, wondering how many times you have to say, it's just hay fever, before the person understands your symptoms are due to hay fever. So more Eurovision nonsense here. When the UK hosted Eurovision in 1977, things were made even more complicated because the country was gripped by widespread industrial action. This meant the BBC camera crews and technicians were on strike. Eurovision expert. There's actually an expert out there who just studies Eurovision. He's only about Eurovision. Eurovision is in his lifeblood. Gordon Roxburgh added more detail this industrial action actually affected the Eurovision Song Contest itself because the BBC couldn't guarantee that it could go ahead. At the same time, it's the closest the contest ever came to cancellation, other than during uh, other than during the pandemic. There were calls for the Netherlands to step in and host, but the camera crews refused in solidarity with their British counterparts. The contest was finally held in the UK five weeks later than originally planned. It was left to Lindsay DePaul, Paul Mike Moran to represent the UK with their song Rock Bottom, a song which directly cemented an encolic state of the nation. 
Scott Talbot, who works in the sound department that year, commented it was a sort of reflecting on the in, in industrial problems of the time. And when we first heard it, oh, quite brave as everybody else was a bit clappy, happy, jolly and smiley. The narrator that touched on why Lindsay DePaul and Mike Rand's performance had the BBC bosses hot under the colour was touted as the bookie's favourite. Rock Bottom had been the pre-contest favourite, but it finished runner-up to France on the night and it hadn't had the full backing of Auntie Beeb, the BBC. Over 40 years later, secret internal memos were unearthed which unveiled the shocking truth. Eurovision expert Dr. Paul Jordan, here's another one, he's actually got a doctorate in Eurovision. In 2009, documents were released from the BBC meeting that showed they were actually relieved the UK hadn't won. They definitely didn't want to host the Eurovision again. It was a costly event. The show's host continued, according to the minutes of the meeting between the BBC governors, uh, when it was seen that the UK was winning the contest and would have to pay for it again in 1978, BBC faces at Wembley had grown longer and longer. Another governor said the evening had been grasping vulgarity and he couldn't bear to watch. In the end, the BBC bosses in question got their wish and the UK missed out on the glory of 1977. Just wondering if in meetings these days that there always has to be somebody. There has to be. It's almost like a designated survivor before the State of the Union address. There has to be somebody designated to say in a meeting, at some point during the meeting, maybe several times, that is awesome. Why do we feel the need to overuse the word awesome? Awesome is a fantastic word, but it's misused for minutia and mediocrity. We need to celebrate the word awesome. We do not need people having to say during a meeting, that is awesome, celebrating something rather mundane. Almost as annoying as my, I really don't like when people say good job after everything. It sort of irks me. I mean, parents say it all the time. You know, you finish second and it's good job, good job. Yeah, that is awesome and good job need to be sort of uh, pushed to the side and only used at the most sparingly of occasions. I just want to have a little bit of remorse and some feelings, some emotion, some compassion for the elliptical machine, the machine that basically heralded my return to the gym the other day. I feel that it hasn't had this sort of workout itself. If, they, if I thought my 45-minute workout was enough, just imagine the elliptical having to go through the motions for those 45 minutes, straining, straining constantly for every second of that allotted time. I feel sorry for it. I mean, and the thing is, I went back again for another session. And I think when it came in, when it saw me come back into the gym, it probably sighed. And another thing, when I first, my first visit back to the gym and the elliptical, I think the elliptical did whisper to me. I thought I, I, I distinctly remember it saying, uh, are you sure? So more weight loss news here. About one year into the coronavirus pandemic, Chris Sandberg decided it was time to get serious about losing weight by turning his health journey into a TikTok challenge. In January 2021, Sandberg began exercising every day until Taco Bell brings back his favorite menu item, the grilled stuffed nacho. 
He continued the challenge for more than 480 days, shedding approximately 87 pounds in the process. Because it's TikTok, you can't just lose weight. You have to turn it into a challenge, Sandberg says. I don't want to want a journey to be about a number on a scale. I want it to be fun. And maybe the goal was something I wanted. And for some reason, the first thing that popped into my mind was that grilled stuffed nacho. And I just ran with it. Sandberg posted his video challenge. Uh, when he weighed about 275 pounds, day one of exercising every day until Taco Bell brings back the grilled stuffed nacho. Sandberg captured the video, do the right thing, hashtag Taco Bell. Taco Bell first introduced the grilled stuffed nacho in 2013, according to the Taco Bell Wikipedia. The menu item which describes on the website is flour tortillas shaped out of nacho stuffed with beef, cheesy jalapeno sauce, sour cream and crunchy red strips. Sandberg said he tried the grilled stuffed nacho for the first time before it was removed from the menus. It's the best thing I've ever tasted. When Sandberg went back to the local Taco Bell the following week, they said the grilled stuffed nacho was no longer available. What makes the grilled stuffed nacho so special to Sandberg is the cheesy jalapeno sauce that they don't use for any other menu item. I want to make this clear. The cheesy jalapeno sauce is different than the creamy jalapeno sauce. It's been about seven years since he had his first stuffed nacho. Sandberg still thinks about it. I just haven't let it go. Sandberg said another motivation for him to try to lose weight was the fact that people who are overweight are more vulnerable to COVID-19. It just occurred to me that I spent much of my time focused on health as I did on TikTok. Maybe I could lose the weight that I've been talking about losing. Over the course of the challenge, Sandberg has shed about 87 pounds, going from 275 pounds to roughly 188 pounds today. When he started his exercise, Sandberg did it for a beach body on demand for several months. He's since moved on to weightlifting and some cardio. The only time he considered quitting was after a one-year mark when his loco Taco Bell specially made Sandberg and his fiancée grilled stuffed nachos. Taco Bell also gave Sandberg a jar of the cheesy jalapeno sauce that he loves so much. I was like, is this a natural ending? When I looked through the videos, I said, exercising every day until Taco Bell brings back this grilled stuffed nacho. Not just the one. I mean, I may have to do the same thing until uh, Cadbury's chocolate, the real McCoy, Cornish pasties, and sausage rolls are readily available in America. At that point, I think I can stop going to the gym. I do feel that I'll become a shadow of my former self. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Keep coming, cauliflower cheese. Like and subscribe wherever you can. We have at Keep Cheese on Twitter. Keep coming, cauliflower cheese on Instagram. And I think I'm going to start posting a few more videos here so you can see my ugly mug. Uh, constantly on Instagram spouting a load of nonsense similar to this podcast really but uh, people seem to like it for some reason are people insane have you lost your mind are you mental asylums following this diatribe and tripe I think you probably are Uh, but uh, if you like listening on audio Apple Podcasts Slacker Breaker iHeartRadio Pandora Amazon Music Audible all of those platforms Basically, as you hear the beginning strains of uh, Eurovision and you hear the Europop, if you rub two glow sticks together, you could hear Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese flaming and emanating from those glow sticks. Uh, If you like music, though, and we have a little bit of a Europop special, some Eurovision tracks here, some Brotherhood of Man on your uh, Butler and Porin musical edition arm wrestle. Uh, we have some uh, Sanremo Mika. We have some Waterloo Abba. 
We also have some diva, Dana International, Janet Jackson. We have a bit of Europop Spice, Horse With No Name, Sexosonic, uh, Kisses For Me, Brotherhood Of Man, as mentioned, some Cliff Richards, some Big Love, Pete Heller, and maybe some Beatles, Hello Goodbye, thrown into there as well, if you like your music with the nonsense. Coming up next, we have a poem. And this is a song for Europe. Eurovision, a crock of shit. We're never going to win it. Our European cousins we know hate our guts that we know. A song for Europe is not a fix, but everybody their neighbour picks. Ten points to the country next door. We're in Ireland. It's just shit poor. It's a shame it's not about the song. Politics are involved. It's wrong. Enjoyable it is to watch the tunes. The judging is the same old news. We only need to see a map to see why voting is such crap. Poor England, bottom of the shelf, even represented by Christ himself. I try to switch off the stage. Perversely, I stay to rage although to watch i cannot bear i hate it when it's not fair i will return next week on keep calm and cauliflower cheese i think it's another day of the slip sap slop but uh yet yeah, squeeze into that lycra tonight pour yourself a nice euro cocktail something very fruity and maybe a nice little cheese platter as well would go down very nice for the fromage that you're going to be hearing that's going to be coming and inputting into your ears till next time a cheesy europop au revoir <laughs>